We are at the end of the first chapter of Ephesians this morning, finishing out that section of God's Word to us. And so I'm going to read for us the, the last section of Ephesians 1, but we're going to be focusing on the last two verses. Um, but I'm going to start in verse 15. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and, and above every name that is named? Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you'd bow with me quickly this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word and we pray that you would be helping us this morning to know it, to cherish it, to believe it. In Christ's good name, amen. The immeasurable power of his might, which he worked in Christ to raise him from the dead. And then after he was raised from the dead, Christ didn't remain on the earth, but in fact ascended into heaven. This is the way the writer of Hebrews puts it, which I think is helpful. After making purification for sins, he sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This idea of the the finishedness of things that Christ, when he ascended on high, he was seated at the right hand. He sat down because his enemies had been made his footstool. And the last enemy yet to be finally put to death is death itself. But in the meantime, he has been exalted far above all the powers and principalities of darkness. Um, When Paul was writing to the Colossians, he said this. Which one? It's a 213. There, And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That there was 
the, the cosmic reality of Christ's death and resurrection was not limited to the place of Jerusalem and Golgotha and then to the people who would believe in him, but was an absolutely radiant event that shone out all across the invisible realm of powers and rulers and authorities. And we, because we are limited in our sight, we don't see those things. We don't wake in the morning and see the powers that are at work and the mighty things that surround us. We tend to forget that this is actually our main enemy, right? We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and spiritual darkness. That this is a very real threat to us. Instead, we have many times our focus is on the the present day, things we can see, things we can touch, things we can feel. And we tend to then make our goal the overturning of a specific person, a specific governmental program, a specific denomination. And all those, those things may be what we need to do, what we often fail to realize is that Christ in his body, by his triumph in the cross, um, is far greater than that. And that there are real spiritual forces and beings that are at war against the church. And if that's the reality, if that and it is the reality, then we should be afraid if it weren't for these sorts of promises that in the resurrection, when Christ was seated at the right hand of the glories of heaven, that all things were put under his feet. And that he is the head over all things, and that he was given to us as the head over all things, to the church. There are lots of ways this plays out. There, there are lots of ways that this is true. But one of the things that we tend to ignore is just the primacy of the church. Um, just in the book of Ephesians, and just where it explicitly says the church or the body of Christ. Here are all the places just in that book that say these sorts of things. So the passage that we had before us this morning, but then also in chapter 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church now is a visible reminder to the worst of the invisible enemies. Chapter 3, verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then in the Ephesians 5, I'm not going to read the entire passage, but in the section on marriage, that is the entirety of the image, is Christ and his bride, the church. He came and he gave himself up for her and washes her with the water and the word to make her spotless and without blemish. And Ephesians 2, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And this is the hostility between Jew and Gentile. 
And then furthering that argument, this, is, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, the church, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Later on in chapter 4, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up into love. The church, the body of Christ, is the preeminent witness of God, not just because we're evangelistic, but just in simply being a believers for not just the world, but the whole of all created things, visible and invisible. But oftentimes what we do with the church is we make it secondary, or third, or fourth, or fifth, or sixth, or a hundredth, down the list of things which are important. That we have any number of things which are more important than the body than the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how important it is that if you think of just how a body functions, right? Here is my head. I'm dead without my body, right? If you were to cut me off and just be my head, I would not be here. There would be no presence. And it doesn't matter how much is contained in the head. Without the body, it's a, there is no witness. There is no reality. There is no tangibleness to it because it doesn't exist. Likewise, without the body, the head by itself doesn't do anything. Has no witness. Cannot function. And so this is the same that we have with Christ the head and his body. They are intrinsically linked. Now, not in the exact same way that the head and the body of our selves are linked, because Christ is independent and glorious apart from us, but in the way he functions as a display to all the world and all of creation, it is intrinsically linked. It is actually unavoidable that this is the end result of Christ triumphant from the grave. When we think of bodies, the imagery given in, later on in Ephesians and the statement that is made is that no one has ever hated his own body. And yet, this is, this is how we actually treat the body of Christ. Um, just think of the neglect that happens in a body. Um, just on the earth, just in regular, not the church, but just someone's body, the sorts of neglect that can happen. One of the main areas that neglect starts for people is in the washing of their bodies, right? So you have a kid, they're bathing, you know, my kids are young, they're starting to not be quite as young. When they're very young, you don't bathe them all that often, right? They're not every day taking a bath, um, and as they grow, they begin to stink, 
more. And so they have to bathe more, right? And then they get to a point where you go, all right, it's every day now. Every, every day you need to do something about that stink. And we're not here to have a debate about how often it's good to shower or bathe. We just all know that as you age, it becomes more of a requirement. Otherwise, you smell bad. And some children, due to neglect, unfortunately, or due to disobedience, don't do that, right? And everybody knows. Their peers know. Their teachers know. The people around them know. They have a bad smell. Now think of this in Christ's body. Right? Let's bring this neglect into the church. What is necessary? Well, it's necessary to realize that if we are not regularly washing with Christ in the Word, the body together, that we will stink. We will not be pleasant to be around. We will actually be unpleasant to be around. And so what is that washing? Well, spiritually speaking, it is the washing of the word that Christ promises to do in Ephesians 5. And what is the washing of the word? It's the scrubbing off of sin and the effects of sin on a regular basis, together as the body. Now let's continue down this metaphor lane to this keeping in the theme, though. If you have a part of your body that needs more regular cleaning, like you have a wound, you have to give more attention to that area, don't you? When I was in high school, I went on a mission trip to Arizona. We went canyon, down into a canyon, went cliff jumping. And me being me, I was very quick to be the second one in following a guy who was even crazier than me named Willie. And being the second one in and not really taking time to think through things, having never been to a canyon to jump 20 feet into the water, into a muddy river, I didn't realize it's usually good, just so you all know, it's a good idea to wear something on your feet when you go cliff diving. Because if you don't, things like what happened to me will happen, which is my foot got stuck in the bottom of the river, and I had to kick to get it out, Then I got to the side, and I won't go through all the gory details, but... Suffice it to say, we had to get out of the canyon. I had to drive two hours to a hospital, got a bunch of stitches, and had a big hole in my foot. Well, so then we get home, and three-day football practices start the next day, or two days later, actually. And me being a typical idiot 16-year-old went, well, three days start. I have this giant open wound on my foot. Of course I'm going to go to three-day football practices. So I go to several days of three-day football practice, sweating and stinking. And then the second or third day, someone stepped on my foot, and it was very painful. And I had been neglecting my wound in many ways. I had not taken proper precautions for it. Basically, all I did was put some butterfly bandages over the top of it and walked on. And I won't get into the gory details because we're in a big setting, but it needed more than that. Um, And so finally, I got stepped on, went to my coach's. And their reaction was one of complete horror that I'd been practicing with such a gaping open wound on my foot. Uh, The first guy, the first coach, my main head coach, was like, Bob, get in here, get in here. Called the other coach in, and they both went, you have to have a doctor's note to come back to practice. 
And so I went to my doctor. And there's any number of things that could have been done. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Maybe talk to Anna afterwards and figure out all the different ways you could have solved the problem. But the thing that our doctor had me do was mo- many times a day to take the... Uh, my parents had a detachable shower head, you know, like a wand. He said, hot as you can stand, multiple times a day, rinse out your wound. Multiple times a day. I had to take extra care. I had to be very vigilant. I had to actually think about the wound on my foot in a way that I hadn't thought about my foot five days earlier. Now, physical reality, spiritual reality in the church. Wounds in the church. Some small, right, paper cuts, just irritations, don't require much. But they do require something, because everybody notices a paper cut. Right? You can't get through life if you have a paper cut without going every five minutes. We have to give some attention. We have to be more careful with that particular finger for a day or so, but it quickly heals. But then you have more aggressive injuries. right? So we have people in our church currently who are not able to attend because of broken ankle, broken arm. Yeah. Just You just got a message now? Okay, let's pray right now, Randy. Thank you. Father, we pray that you would be with the Casper family, and we pray that you'd be with us as we grieve, especially those who know her. And Father, um, these last two days have been very sad for our church family in losing uh, a brother and now losing Margaret. And Father, we pray that you would um, help us to grieve properly and rightly, and that, Father, you would um, bless her family and and comfort them and her friends in the next few days. And, Father, we pray that you would be a help to us as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Randy. So wounds, like death, they take more time. You actually have to pay attention to them. So if there is a big something that has happened in the church that is wounded more like a gaping hole in the foot, you can't simply ignore it and pretend like it's not going to affect anything. It will eventually rot, and you will eventually lose it, and it will eventually affect the whole body in losing that member. Um, And there's all kinds of these sorts of metaphors throughout the entirety of Scripture. The other thing about bodies that we, we tend not to think much about, uh, because as Christians we try not to be vain, right? We don't think of our bodies vainly. Uh, but people notice bodies, right? We, as individuals, notice bodies. So just to give you some scriptural examples of this sort of thing. When Saul, who was the first king of Israel is selected by God and anointed by Samuel, it's noted in Scripture that he was handsome and taller than everybody else. He looked like a good-looking king. He just had a, a nice body. Like he was just big and brawn and, you know, he looked like the kind of guy who could go to war for you. And then when David is anointed... 
His body is also noted as ruddy, meaning kind of small and grunty compared to Saul. The people notice bodies, good or bad. And we notice them sometimes sinfully, but sometimes it's just the reality, right? So if you notice someone who has a cane or a crutch or is in a wheelchair, it's not sinful to notice that and hold the door for them, right? You're noticing a particular body and you don't know anything about them, but you know that they have a weakness that needs help. And then we also know bodies that are much more broken and require much more care. That's true of Christ's body too. Uh, Christ's body in various forms in individual churches and bigger denominations is either properly viewed because it is presenting itself rightly as the good king's body or it has problems. And we would be fools to not realize that whatever display we're putting on as Christ's church is evident to people. That whoever we present ourselves to be is how people will perceive Christ. And so if it is a grouchy church, everyone will think Christ is a grouchy head. If it's a church that doesn't do things well, people will take note when that happens. And so we should be thinking about these things as Christ's body. Now the good news in all of this, in thinking about our bodies and cleanliness and wounds and what we are perceived as the body of Christ, the great glory of it is that we are Christ's body. And that even though in and of ourselves we're not very good at any of these things, Together, even. We neglect regular cleaning. We neglect wounds. We neglect taking stock of how people may perceive our bodies and what weaknesses we actually have. The good news is Christ is not ever going to fail to take care of his body. Now, it might be wounded and weak, right? So we sing, um, I think it was... Number 401, let me look here. The church is one foundation. Um, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war. This is the constant reality that we face. And so amidst all of these things concerning the body, we're given this great truth. That even though we are surrounded by enemies, invisible, invisible, and that we have much to fear if we're left to our own selves, and even though we're filled with many sins that cause us to neglect things, this is the truth. He put all things under his feet. We talked a week or so ago about the gift of the Spirit and that the Spirit was given to us as our guarantee, our down payment until we finally take full possession of our inheritance. This is from 
Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Being therefore, wait, this Jesus God raised up from the dead. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so... Peter links the anointing of the spirits with the exaltation of Christ. Here in the book of Ephesians, the same is done. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then earlier, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That if there is hope for us in the promise of the Spirit... It is doubly hoped for because, it is, because Christ is head of the church and exalted above all things and in his exaltation gave us the Spirit. The writer of Hebrews says we are assured of our redemption because in these two things it is impossible for God to lie. And he's quoting specifically uh, an eternal covenant God made with man. But the reality is there are multitudes of multitudes of promises of God and works of God which multiply this truth over and again. So we are given hope because we have the Spirit as our guarantee that we will persevere to the end. And that Spirit was given to us because of Christ's exaltation as the head of all things, triumphant. So now we have two things by which we can gain hope despite our own sin, despite the enemies without And we have then the promise of God the Father who sent the Son and exalted Him at the right hand so that He could pour out the Spirit to give us a guarantee until the end. And not only does He just promise these things, they're not bare promises. He doesn't just do it and expect us to hope that it will happen and that it is good. But He gives us many, many witnesses to these promises. So if God the Father exalted the Son and the Son sent the Spirit and the Spirit is given to the church so that we will inherit the goodness of God, then we can look at the works of the Spirit as witnesses that we will in fact triply have hope in God. So things like the Word itself, the fact that we have the Spirit-given Word of God, Gives us hope that when Jesus said, I'm going to send my spirit, he's going to make call things to remembrance for you so that you can explain them and write them down. He did it. So he's given us not just the, the promise of the spirit, but visible proof of the spirit. So that we could know that Christ is exalted, who has given us the spirit, so that we could trust in God, the father, who has exalted the son. He gives us other things. Gifts of the Spirit. 
And not just the spiritual gifts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Not just the fruits, but also gifts individually. Right? All sorts of gifts given to us as individuals. And then gifts specifically for the building up of the unity of the church and the spirit in the form of the apostles and prophets and shepherds and teachers. He's given us all these things as witnesses to his promise of the Spirit that was given to us because the Son of God is exalted and he will redeem his body. There are many other ways that God makes this evident to us. It is not just a cosmic display to our enemies, but it is a display of his power and authority to us for our comfort and our hope. Because it's very easy, very easy to lose hope um, if we see our enemies, and they are many, and think, boy, they're really powerful. They're really strong. What are we going to do in the face of that? Or, it's very easy to lose hope if you have suddenly realized you've been living and stinking and everyone knows it. So many of us have memories of the middle school years and suddenly coming to the realization that you need to wear deodorant, right? And it's, it was a shameful time. Like you suddenly realize that you have not just smelled bad today, but you've probably been stinking for a while and so there's the shame of having to recover from that and go face the people who once thought you smelled. We have victory in Christ to do these things. That that is actually one of the witnesses that God is at work in the church. Is that the church will say, yeah, I was, we kind of smelled bad. But because Christ is all-powerful and is washing us, we're changing. We're different. I'm going to give one example of that and then I'll be done. There are many things to be thankful for in the church. Um, One of the things that has been helpful to me, even though it's been an imperfect thing, has been uh, the turnaround of the Southern Baptist Convention that happened in the 90s. So the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination, I don't know exactly how many, somewhere between 15 and 20 million members. It's it's about 10 times as large as the next largest denomination that's Protestant. It's very large. In the 60s and 70s, they were growingly liberal. And by the late 70s, extremely liberal. Um, But there was a group of men and women who dedicated themselves to washing the Southern Baptist Convention. They realized they stank and realized that by stinking they gave dishonor to their head, Jesus Christ. And they, I don't know if they initially called themselves the conservative resurgence, but over time that's how they came to be known, the conservative resurgence. And what they did was they worked for about 15 years with no visible fruit really. Nothing had changed. All the same players were still there, stinking up the place. And then they finally got enough pieces in place 
where they were able to overturn the main Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And they placed this guy named Al Moeller there as um, the dean and the head of that school. And 80% of the faculty of Southern Baptist Seminary left in two years. It's never fun to realize you stink. It's never fun to get washed. And the other thing that's not fun is having to admit to the world that the largest Protestant denomination in the world, well, in the United States, stunk and had to be cleaned. But the fruit of that even though there's goings-on in the Southern Baptist Convention currently over the last five to eight years, the fruit of that early 90s overthrow, washing, has been manifold in many. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors have come out of the Southern Baptist Convention much more godly than, very, than the very few that came out godly for the previous 15 years and have led their churches well. And have washed the bride of Christ with the water of the word. This can happen at a huge scale like the Southern Baptist Convention. But that's the sort of thing that happens on a small scale every week. Where God, through his kindness, says, you are my body attached to my son. Time for your weekly cleansing. Um, it's often not fun, but it, it, but it is helpful. And one of the most helpful things is found in just the admitting of sin, um, and which is why we do things like our confession of sin every week. It's not just to make you feel bad. It's to remind you that every week you need to be washed. And that's part of God's regular service to his body, and we are his body. Um, and if we weren't, we would have no need to be washed. We would be happy to stink. So let's be thankful to God that Christ, who is the head, will not leave us to our own, but will wash his body and will fill us by his spirit and will bring us to the end by his spirit. Amen. I'm going to pray quickly and then we're going to take communion. Father, we are very grateful for your love for us, your care for us, and the fact that we are the body of Christ, intrinsically linked. Without our head, we are nothing. And without us, Christ's witness dies on the earth. And so, Father, give us the right witness. Attach us to our head. Help us to properly reflect who we are as the body of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.